This is episode 58 of the 99 Forever podcast. I'm Eric Friesen, and my guest tonight is making his second appearance on the podcast. He's our newest writer at heavyhockey.com, Raghu Sharma. Raghu, welcome back to the show. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me back on, and uh, excited to also be part of the Heavy Hockey Network as a writer now. Yeah, it's good to talk to you again, and it's good to have you at the network. Uh, the last time you were on the show, we were recapping the Battle of Alberta playoff series. So uh, as an Oilers fan living in Calgary, what was it like having bragging rights all summer? Oh, it was amazing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I think the last time we spoke, it was right after game two had happened, and we were recapping those first two games. So yeah, the uh, who who would have expected that we would have done the gentleman sweep? But it was uh, it was pretty it was pretty awesome. Uh, pretty much after every game, uh, made my way down to uh, 17th Ave. I live pretty close to downtown actually, so uh, it, it just you you could see the camaraderie across all the Oilers fans, and uh, we were getting chirped after every win. So it just kind of <laughs> kept Love egging it. on to that. And and uh, when when we actually when Connor McDavid scored that overtime goal, which I'm not gonna lie. I've seen a few times since since it's happened. Uh, uh, it was it was a fantastic moment, and uh, and and then obviously uh, uh, what followed in the following series wasn't so great, but to to make it to the final four was was fantastic and something that I definitely hadn't seen obviously since '06 uh, when I was kind of too young to to be surrounded by that 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 atmosphere and that and and that fun camaraderie across fans. So it was great. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was a playoff run to remember. And hopefully we'll have more runs like that uh, in Edmonton over the next decade or so. But I remember you saying that you were at the Game 7 victory over the L.A. Kings at Rogers Place in the first round. I'm not sure if you were able to attend any playoff games during the Battle of Alberta, but uh, were you watching them all, like you said, um, down on 17th? Did you see some at home and were, were you mainly surrounded by Flames fans for every game? Yeah, I I actually did not get to attend uh, a game. I was um, it, it was kind of an interesting time. I was traveling for work, so I, games one and four I kind of uh, had to watch in a different city, and then games two and three just couldn't get the timing right to be able to attend. But um, for for I think it was game three, we actually were on 17th Ave when we watched it. Uh, but for games two and game five, we made sure to actually make our way down to 17th Ave just to just to be part of the the celebration after. So and it was it was fun. Like you just uh, it, it was kind of funny to be in a in the complete opposite city, but just <laughs> Oilers fans are Oilers fans. Uh, we were sitting down at random restaurants, and then people would just be like, "Hey, come over to our table and come drink with us," while you're just kind of getting booed and heckled by everybody else. So. Uh, no, it was it was great. Um, I, it's funny. I watched Game Four in Dallas. That's where I was traveling for work, and I found some Oilers fans while I was there too. So we we're we're everywhere. We're <laughs> we're definitely a passionate fan base. You know, imagine if uh, Dallas would have knocked off Calgary in the first round. You might have been able to attend a game while you were on your work trip down there. You know what? That's because uh, I had that work trip scheduled in advance, so that was actually how I thought it was going to line up. And <laughs> and the way it was scheduled, we would have, I, I'm, because we were still the higher seed compared to Dallas, as I recall. Yeah. So yeah, games, 
three and four would have been there. So that's exactly what I was hoping for. It didn't end up happening, but, uh, Oh, I couldn't have lined up more perfectly for you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But you know what, looking back now, and I'll admit I wanted Dallas to win that series, um, selfishly because I I don't like the flames. And and even though, (laughs) even though the battle of Alberta was an epic memory and, and it made it so much better that the Oilers won, um, people will say, oh, don't you want to cheer for the Flames so that you can get that series? For me, not really. Like, I, I'd rather they just always lose. But the fact that the Oilers were the ones that knocked them out made it that much sweeter. Yeah, it did. I mean, I, we, I think we talked about it after. And, and luckily, when I'd come on, we'd been able to see the first two games. But um, if, if we had done our podcast after game one and that loss, and I, I know it was a high-scoring game, and we had a we had a few of those. I think even the... Uh, the Battle of Alberta that concluded the regular season last year was another like nine six affair. Um, so you didn't really know, and and a lot of people had pegged the Flames to go much further because of just their their top line was the best line in the NHL. They seemed to have everything locked down defensively, but that series turned into eighties. Uh, yeah. Edmonton Oilers and Calgary Flames hockey, and that works to our advantage when we have two of the best players in the world. Oh. Absolutely. The Oilers are not a team that the Flames want to trade chances with, and they were willing to in that series, and it cost them because uh, the Oilers just have more firepower than the Flames had, and our goalie outplayed their goalie, which going into the series you probably didn't think was going to happen. Yeah, completely agree. We we've had Markstrom's number since he's become a Calgary Flame, and that's right. That's saying something when he's a he's a good goalie, all things considered. Um. And you know what? The other thing that would have made that Edmonton-Dallas series special, too, is they played so often in the late 90s and early 2000s that it would have been kind of nice 20 years later to have a shot at redemption against them. But knowing how everything turned out now with that kind of 2020 vision, I think that a victory over the Flames in the playoffs is still more satisfying than a victory over Dallas would have been. (laughs) <laughs> well, and, and it's funny, I can even relate to, uh, as you said, how, how did it feel over the summer? Well, now we're into a new season where we we split the series so far against them. But after the right. first game where they beat us, I, I kept hearing, oh, we're better. I'm like, but who won in five? So, <laughs> And of course, the Oilers got the win back at the Saddle Dome later that month. That's right. So <laughs> but you quickly, they might have briefly had the bragging rights, but you, you quickly snatched it back from them. Pretty much. <laughs> That's good. It, it sounds, I remember you telling me that you had a group of Oilers fans that you knew in Calgary. So I think it yeah. probably makes for a fun atmosphere if you are friends with some Flames fans and Oilers fans and everyone's able to get together and watch uh, watch the game together. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, it's a group group. A great group of friends it's it's all in good fun too and when, when the ribbing happens obviously um the the bragging rights mean there's a little bit of a oh you until until <laughs> we get to have a rematch there's not really much we can say but uh uh again if if we look at the standings right now it's uh it's pretty pretty tight between us and the flames as it stands right. and the pacific division in general so um yeah, every season brings its unique challenges, and uh, I'm sure we're going to get into it, but there's a lot of unique challenges we're going through as a team even this year. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I'll just say the final battle of Alberta for the regular season will be the first game after the Christmas break, and it seems like 
a real shame that the Oilers and Flames are only going to play three times. And I, I think that that was a big mistake by the NHL schedule makers to only have three Battle of Alberta's and have them all in the first half of the season. You'd like to have at least one or two down the stretch when they really mean a lot. And uh, unfortunately, they just couldn't give it to us this year. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised. I'd, I'd really like... Uh a post-op analysis on how they really come up with determining those schedules. I, I imagine those are irrelevant of what kind of happens at the playoffs, but th- that, that Battle of Alberta series should be a perfect example of how we were in the spotlight across uh, NBCSN and, and everything they're doing on TNT. And that was one of the biggest focused series across all of the NHLs. So Which is rare we, in the States that two Canadian teams would have that much interest. And it might help that there are some, or at the time were some big name American born players on the flames. And the Oilers have the allure of watching McDavid and Dreisaitl play. So there's, there's plenty of star power there, but still trying to sell a game between Edmonton and Calgary to an American audience it's been a challenge for the NHL in the past, but I think that just the intensity and the rivalry that those teams have built up the last few years, going back to the epic goalie fight between Cam Talbot and yeah. uh, uh, Mike Smith a few years ago, I think that's really what launched this rivalry and put fans around the league aware of it. Yeah, and and honestly, it's even fascinating. Uh, like we could go even deeper with like the, the goal that McDavid scored as Goudreau almost like was skating out of the zone. It was like his exit. There's so many yeah. metaphors you can bring. And it's, it's interesting because even if they were to have a rematch, the roster is, I mean, the Oilers had some, some minor changes here and there, but the, the flames have. They completely added. overhauled their, you know, the core of that team. Exactly. And, and even, talking to just the two BOAs we've had so far uh like you've just noticed the the lack of the physicality in these series because there is no Matthew Kachuk anymore and like what a difference one player makes uh Huberto, Uyghur uh and and even Kadri is not playing that type of game so um I I maybe it's one of those things where now that these are long-term locked up players we might see them evolve into realizing what the BOA is, but it, it hasn't really felt like it so far, at least in the first two games. And maybe it will in this last battle right right after Christmas. For sure. And, you know, the last time you were on the show, you were a first-time guest. So whenever I have a, a, someone on for the first time, I always like to learn a little bit about them, their background as a hockey fan and everything. One thing that I don't think we touched on that I wanted to ask on your Twitter bio, you list the Tampa Bay Lightning as your second favorite team after the Oilers. Yeah. I'm just curious, when did that fandom start? And is it at all linked to the fact that they eliminated the Calgary Flames in the 2004 Stanley Cup final? It, it, it's it's exactly that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and it's and it's funny. I mean, it's definitely part of that. I'm not just. Uh, it's it's not just about hating the Flames, but I was a big fan of a player like Marty St. Louis at the time, uh, and Vincent Lecapier. They were two players I just loved watching them play. And Marty was a guy who was just this short, like player who could kind of fight the tough battles. That's why I think I've always respected players like Yamamoto and 
and any of these uh, players that really have to grind for what they get. And I think that might come from the fact that I'm not the biggest guy either. Um, so it, it all kind of stemmed from that. And then obviously, um, yeah, them taking out the flames was extra special. Um, and I just, yeah, they, they've always been that team for me. I've, I've, I, I like a lot of their players even now. I was happy for someone like Stamkos when he finally won his cup and all the things that he went through with, um, with the tumor in his leg and, um, uh, or the, sorry, the blood clot that he had in his leg and those kind of things. So, uh, yeah, they've always been my, I, I, I knew I could never root for a second Western conference team. It just, right. I, I just can't do it. So Oilers aside, like I was even kind of hoping that it would have been Edmonton versus Tampa. That was the final I wanted to see. Um, and uh, we do, we, we couldn't make it past the avalanche. The Tampa Bay lightning did their job, but that was, the the final I was hoping to see, um, and unfortunately we didn't get it. But uh, there's always this year. So. <laughs> That's right. And you know I was for two reasons excited about the result of that final. First of all, I mean I'd cheer for anyone against the Flames. But secondly, <laughs> uh, Corey Sarich is from my hometown of Saskatoon, and he won uh, the Stanley Cup with the the Lightning that year. So he brought the cup uh, to Saskatoon in the summer of 2004, and that was also the same year that uh, my Bantam team won the city championship. So my dad, who was the coach of our team, there's a picture of the two of us wearing our um, Bantam city championship jackets with the Stanley Cup that summer when I was 15. So uh, I, I was very happy that the Lightning won for that reason. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's yeah. that's so cool. And to get to, uh, like, I've been to the Hockey Hall of Fame. I've seen the Stanley Cup. I've refused to touch the cup when I've been really. <laughs> Yeah, I just okay. I I feel like it's one of those things for me where I I, I know I'm not on the Edmonton Oilers, but I feel like it's one of those things where I I want to see them win it well, before I touch it. <laughs> I, I think as long as you don't lift it over your head, you're o- sure. you're okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I've gone even further than hugging it. I've actually kissed it. And uh, this this was pre-COVID, though, too. I, I'm not sure if uh, I would uh, go in for a, a second kiss if I went back to the Hockey <laughs> Hall of Fame uh, in 2022. But uh, there is a picture of me uh, with the cup doing that. So that's kind of funny. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I, I just wanted to say I'm glad you got to experience that memorable win in Calgary. I, I wish I could have celebrated uh, an Oilers win of that magnitude when I was going to university there a decade ago. And uh, I know you were at the game last night, so we'll talk about that now. Yeah. Uh, Brett Kulak opened the scoring for the Oilers early in the second period, and Connor McDavid tallied a shorthanded breakaway goal to extend his goal streak to five games. But Edmonton ultimately dropped a 3-2 decision to the Washington Capitals on home ice. And despite the loss, Oilers rookie goalie Stuart Skinner had arguably his best game in the NHL, making a career-high 47 saves, and he was easily the Oilers' best player last night. Regu, the Capitals had an 18-7 advantage in high-danger chances, but Skinner kept the Oilers in the game right until the very end. What can you say about the performance that Skinner turned in last night? Oh, it was nothing short of spectacular. Uh, I and and I was sitting in the in the lower bowl just to kind of preface it, uh, right near mid center ice. So I had a great view of um, kind of a lot of the action. Uh, I was on the Oilers side attacking twice, but uh, 
most of the first period was kind of spent in the in the opposite end. But uh, I can even speak back to the first 10 minutes, and it's something that's been a struggle for the Oilers as a whole. But in the first 10 minutes, um, Darnell Nurse took that one penalty, and I swear for that entire two-minute penalty, the Washington Capitals just owned possession in the zone. And I think in that one sequence, Skinner made six saves. And they were off to a 13-3 shot advantage in the in that span. So just that sequence alone was enough to tell you that Skinner was in for a really good night. And and then he continued to make save after save on breakaway chances, on other power play opportunities, and uh, and and a big break and a big breakaway chance at the end against Mantha. So. Uh, he gave us a chance, and he has been playing spectacular. The The poise that he shows when he's in the crease and and the way he knows how to kick pucks off to the side, the, the way he knows how to deflect the puck out when he sees that the line on the ice has been on too long. He's a, he's a very smart goalie for, for someone who's just over 20-some games in in, in an Oilers jersey so yeah he was nothing short of spectacular yeah I, I mean agreed and even though he has a seven and six record yeah. it, it doesn't really show how strong of a rookie campaign he's had so far this year I mean he ranks second in the league in save percentage and third in goals against among rookie goalies that have played at least 10 games Skinner had a 940 save percentage last night and that was his sixth time that he's posted a 935 save percentage or better this season, which are even above elite numbers. And unfortunately, the Oilers wasted an outstanding performance by their goaltender because Skinner gave them a chance to win despite being outshot 50 to 30, including multiple breakaway chances in the third period that he denied. And on one of those rare nights where neither McDavid nor Dreisaitl were at their best, You'd like to see someone else step up, maybe a guy in the bottom six and score a goal for the team and get them to overtime, but they just couldn't give Skinner the goal support that he needed to get the win, and that's a that's a real shame. Um, interesting things that's been happening this year because uh, you, you just mentioned the 7-6 and six record. Campbell has the exact same record with a much worse goals against and save percentage, but... Um, it, it seems whenever Skinner's in the net, we just, uh, I don't know if it's, if it's off nights, obviously we're dealing with a lot of different issues and different things are happening throughout right. the season here, but, uh, Campbell seems to get the goal support, um, uh, when, when he's letting in four or five goals and, uh, and Skinner, who knows if that's just a coincidence or if it's been the quality of competition. It's so hard to say, but uh, you're exactly right. They just, it, it seems like they score more goals when Campbell's in net. It, it's its almost like they get that jump in their step. And uh, it was fascinating. Like I, I'm, I've, I mean, I'm, I'm an Oilers fan. I want them to win, but if I'm looking at that game, we, we were fortunate to, to have the score we were in, and it was purely because of Skinner. He was the best player on the ice. But some other shout-outs I want to kind of mention based on everything yeah, of that course. I was witnessing was I thought Holloway had an amazing game. He was uh, moving up through the lineup as, uh, as as you saw, Woodcroft started line juggling quite a bit. Um, uh, and, and there's been interesting thoughts on that. Uh, what's that? 
of lines or or juggling it up when things aren't working. But I thought I thought Holloway's elevation really helped. I thought Ryan Nugent Hopkins has been playing spectacular, given that with the with the lack of um, of Andrew Kane after that brutal cut to the hand and and now Zach Hyman being out. Yeah, um, you you've seen Woodcroft by necessity have to pair Drysaddle and McDavid together, which uh, forces Nugent Hopkins to go back to that center role. But I thought he's been playing excellent, and I thought his chemistry with Holloway uh, when they were playing together was was really good. Um, one of the other players I really liked yesterday was Costin. I've loved him since he's come in. We've needed someone with size that pressures d- defensemen or or even uh, the wingers on the on the half boards when they're just even trying to have the puck go out. So the physicality that he brought was excellent. And uh, you mentioned Kulak right off the top. I thought Kulak had an excellent game, although right after the amazing shorthanded effort by McDavid was um, an unfortunate wrong guess on Kulak's part. It's it's hard to blame him too much with with the direction he moved the stick because you're deciding between. Kuznetsov passing to Oshi or to um, I think it was Strom who it was that tic-tac that led to the goal, but uh, it yeah. it just shows that there we we have some deficiencies um, in in some areas, uh, including our penalty kill, which which is not really yeah. been a strong it's, suit for us this year. No, it's it's been a it's been a real sore spot, and that's that's unfortunate because you know i'm not trying to go backwards here but dave tippett really did have this team going in the right direction on the penalty kill there was the year i think it was 2019-20 where they were number 1 in the league on the power play and number 2 in the league on the penalty kill and they still have a lot of the same parts that they did on that team so it's a little confusing why the penalty kill has struggled so much. Is it just the messaging that's coming across from Dave Manson, who's now in charge of it? You know, he seemed to have it going um, in the right order last season when, when he joined the team with Jay Woodcroft in mid February. Um, They do have to clean that up though. I will agree with you on cost. And I think that he adds some new elements to the bottom six that they didn't have before. You look at the goal he scored in Minnesota in the dying seconds. I mean, that was a great shot. Um, he's got the size six foot three, 215 pounds. He plays with a bit of edge. You talked about, uh, Dylan Holloway. I thought he played with tons of energy. He looks more confident with the puck. Some of the moves that we saw him make when he was playing college hockey at Wisconsin, he would just pull off these beautiful dangles at full speed. And even last year when he was with the Bakersfield Condors, there were, there were a couple highlight reel goals, um, off the rush and, I don't know if we're going to see that on a regular basis in the NHL, at least in his rookie season, but you can start to see the confidence building in this player where he was deferring off a little too much when he first got up to the the show. But right now it seems like when he gets the puck in the offensive zone, he's willing to try and make plays happen. And, and I think that that's a positive step forward for him. I was going to say there is there was one moment there in the third period where he had a chance to take a shot and he did defer. Um, but again, I think that's an overall Oilers problem. I was, I was well, yeah, I mean, on, they yeah. had they had what a one three on one and one three on two last game. And McDavid and Drysaddle, I believe, were involved in both of them. And they both made the one extra pass instead of shooting. And 
we started to see McDavid shoot a lot more this year, but he had the puck from the the high slot. And I would like to see him just rifle a wrist shot from there. Like, yes, if you're able to make that perfect fake to the middle and then dish it off to dry sidle for the one timer when it works, it's a, it's a gorgeous play and it's incredibly difficult for the, the goalie to stop dry sidle from his spot. But sometimes I just think they're looking for that pass too much. And you just like to see them have a little bit more of that shooter's mentality, especially when you have a clean look like that, because you never know either that could go in or create a rebound. And when you fall one goal short, it, it leaves you thinking like, wow, you know, we, we passed up on a couple opportunities where we didn't even get a shot on goal. I mean, just, just even look at what the Capitals did on the game winning goal. Um, yeah. It was defended pretty well coming, coming back. And I, I'm just blanking on who it was. It might've been Bouchard or, or CC and well, Bouchard they, they, slid, he dove to try and take away the play. And, um, you know, that obviously didn't work out because the puck came back and the trailer was able to just throw a, throw a puck into a, a bit of a maze and it found the back of the net. They're just like looking for the trailer in that instance where you've got given a better opportunity is what led to the, to the game winner. And, I agree. I think um, it's funny. I was listening to Reed Wilkins and uh, Rob Brown on overtime open line on the way to work this morning. And they were talking about how Washington is a volume shooting team and, and how the Oilers look too much for the pretty play. And, and you see, like, I mean, you, you look for the perfect pass should be a tap in goal, but in confidence in in their own shot going in and i can even go back to the game before where there was an empty net and Yanmark missed wide yeah he was right like <laughs> right off the post just, right off the, yeah right off the post and out and um i think this is where it's like a bit of a lack of confidence issue or or it could just be messaging it, it's hard to tell but the uh, I, I think the Oilers need to get back to playing simple hockey and, and shooting the puck. And it's and it's interesting. I listened to Darnell Nurse's post-game interview, and he even said, we need to keep things simple. We need to shoot more pucks on the net. But even he tends to defer. So it's like the yeah. what what they're saying is not what they're doing in action. And I think that's something they just need to work on. Just just play the next game. And, and they're playing the Coyotes tomorrow. And again, you can't take anybody lightly in this league. The Coyotes came back from 2 nothing yesterday against the Flames, right. ended up losing, but they've been a tough matchup for everyone. So I think they're another one of those teams where you, you need to... Look, that being said, the, the Coyotes are a team that the Oilers swept last season, and they're a team that the Oilers put up big numbers against. I went to one of the games in March where the Oilers beat them 6-1 at Rogers Place, and that was actually the very first game after the the nine six loss to the Flames, which I believe you told me you went to. Yeah, yeah. I completely forgot Arizona was right after. So. Yeah, Ryan McLeod scored two goals. I remember that um, McDavid had the the icebreaker in the first period. So yeah, I mean it was it was a fun game to go to where they kind of just blew them out. Um, but you know we can't take anyone lightly, even even if the schedule is you know starting to get a bit easier but like they have to you know take advantage of this i think this is game 14 of their 14 game road trip so 
if if there's ever a game that they need to take advantage of, I mean, this is one where you want to see them come out and get the two points tomorrow. So would you go right back to Skinner for a third straight start against the Coyotes, or would you be looking to get Jack Campbell back in the net after sitting for almost a week? It's an interesting one. I I personally would want to go Skinner again, but he just took on 50 shots. Does he? Have yeah, to you don't want him to be worn down. Exactly, and he right now he is playing like our starting goalie. Maybe Arizona's the game that that helps give um, Jack Campbell the confidence. We need both goalies going, regardless. Uh, gone are the days of the of the main goalie that's playing sixty sixty mm-hmm. games. Let's let's look at even the some of the top goalies we've always talked about: Vasilevsky, Shesterkin, Sorokin. Right now, all three of them are actually struggling. Sorokin just lost again today. That's three in a row that he's lost. Uh, the Rangers don't look like the same team they were last year. And Tampa Bay, after three straight Stanley Cup look like they're starting to feel the impacts of extended seasons. So, oh yeah, it, when you go on that it, many deep runs in a, lo- a row, sorry, it's going to catch up with you eventually. <laughs> the belief like I I still really like Jack Campbell I know some people are turning on him some people are saying we should just trade him and um I I, I wasn't I can be one of those people that didn't like the cap hit there's some cap hits on the Oilers I'm not the biggest fan of but market yeah. dictates what happens and and you 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 have to roll with that and and Jack is one of those guys that I think um himself we've seen in the interviews i i don't know how you actually overcome that i i think that mm-hmm. needs to come internally um so and and i think that the only way that can happen is for him to regain the game through his own confidence so for that reason um i i think it should be jack campbell for this game and then he gives skinner the rest he needs um but we gotta come out playing we can't let 10 minutes of a game pass by and uh, and have less than five shots on it like we seem to be doing as a running trend. Yeah, and I, I, I do want to talk to you about starts in a second. But first, I, I want to go back to Bouchard. You know, and unfortunately, he was benched for the final 12 minutes last night after uh, misplaying what ended up being the eventual game-winning goal for Washington in the third period. Uh Look, Bouchard has had a tough start to his sophomore season. Though he's been much better of late, he scored a few clutch goals that led to come-from-behind wins. Uh, where are you at with this player right now? I, I I have the same feelings about Bouchard that I do about Pugliarvi. I'm a, I'm a fan of both, and I know both are struggling a bit right now. I think, I think if we focus on Bouchard, he's really... It looks like he's really missing Duncan Keith, which I... I really didn't expect. I, yeah. I thought he would have taken a step forward. I think a lot of people thought that. Um, but but sophomore slumps happen. Um, and as you said, he's been better as of late. Um, but he's still a young defenseman who's going to make mistakes from time to time. I think it's not just Bouchard. I could I could make comments about a lot of our defensemen, um, our, our entire decor in general. We just don't have... Um, that that grit. I think Nima Lyman has it a bit. Uh, Kulak to me showed something yesterday. I thought he was fantastic overall in that game, and I love that he was one of the defensemen who, whenever he got the puck, he took a shot. There was a pass where even after he scored the goal, maybe the goal gave him confidence, but 
Dryside will give him a pass, and he took a shot. And I think that's the recognition they need. If if one of your top players is giving the puck, you take that shot whenever you can. And Bouchard started to do that, so I'm I'm definitely thinking he will find a way to turn it around. Um, but I think the biggest thing this team seems to be missing, and again, well, two things. We just mentioned Duncan Keith because I think there was both the leadership on and off the ice, but the other one was Mike Smith. I never thought yeah. how much Mike Smith's playmaking abilities was actually such a big part of this decor. We, we, we just talked about how the decor hasn't changed much, but what has changed is Mike Smith being able to stop around and quickly his D-men who can exit out of the zone. We're spending a lot more time chasing pucks back into our own zone and the pressure that's coming in from basically every team we've faced so far this season Right. Pressure on this specific Oilers decor. And so I think that we need to make a move on the defensive front at some point here. I'm just not sure what exactly that move looks like. And I know there was a rumor about Eric Carlson out there today, but who knows if that (laughs) happens. Um, But and and look, he's having a resurgence and I'm sure he'd be a, a valuable piece to bring in, especially for what he brings offensively. But I don't know. I think that's a a tough trade to to make happen, especially within your own division. I also just wanted to go back and say I'm conflicted on who to start between Skinner and Campbell tomorrow. I mean, it seems like a good game to get Campbell in there. It's, you're playing one of the weakest teams in the league. This seems like a game where, okay, he's not going to face a, a ton of elite shooters. You might be able to build some confidence back up there and get a good win. Um, I, I still think that you roll with Skinner for now while he's on top of his game. Like, yes, he did face a lot of shots last night, but just the way he's been playing the last week or two, especially, I think that you want to keep that rolling and trying to capitalize that as long as he's giving you these consistent uh, 930 and above save percentages. Uh, As, as for Bouchard though, like, you know, you make a good point. Um, maybe we did underestimate the importance of Duncan Keith's mentorship to Bouchard. And even though Keith wasn't the player that he once was by the time he got to Edmonton, the guidance he was able to pass along to Bouchard was probably invaluable to him. So it might take Bouchard some time to adjust to not having Keith as his defensive partner this year. But, you know, when we look back to last season, he had a fantastic first season in the, in the NHL with 43 points in 2021-22. But young defenders usually don't develop in a straight line, and they are going to make mistakes. And I think we we often forget that Bouchard has only played 128 games in the NHL, so he's still very early in his career. But he was drafted to be an offensive defenseman, so he might only ever be average defensively. But hopefully he'll become a 60-point scorer in the next year or two, so you can live with the odd defensive mistake because he'll make up for it with his offense. And as for him getting benched, I I don't think that he should have been the only one. Probably every defender on the team deserved to be benched at some point last night. Um, I'm not sure if there's one guy you could point to and say they had a great game. Like you said, I mean, Kulak obviously had the goal, but, um, you know, like you said, he he made a, a, a pretty bad defensive error as well. And um, look, we've seen, we've seen Woodcroft 
put Bouchard out on the ice with nine seconds left in the game when they were trailing by one against the Florida Panthers, and he scored the biggest goal of the season or of, of the season for him to send it to overtime. So I don't think that there's going to be any hard feelings between the player and the coach. And let's also remember Woodcroft has coached Bouchard for several years, going back to their time in Baker's field uh, in the AHL. So Woodcroft knows the player well, and I'm sure that he and Dave Manson had a discussion with Bouchard today on how he could have played that better. And let's just hope that uh, it, it gets better from here because, um, you know, that, that was a tough one to give up, but it, it's hard to pin the loss on him when Look, you were at the game. I was watching it on TV. They they didn't deserve to win the game, whether he makes that mistake or not. And 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 you made such a great point about how like there was a point where every defenseman could have been benched for one thing or another. It's it's funny uh, for all of those plays. I actually thought Tyson Berry was one of our worst defensemen yesterday. There was a and 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 it's funny in both the first and the third period where I got to see the Oilers actions um on on my side of the ice in their own defensive zone there was moments where Tyson Berry was the one going up and covering the winger and I don't know if that was like a missed assignment or what was going on but he was scrambling all over the ice and and there was a couple plays where the puck was up him and that led to like two on one advantages so I actually thought yes Bouchard made the key mistake that led to the game-winning goal, but there were mistakes yeah. made by other demon that were far more egregious. Where Skinner was the one that bailed them out, so they look less like mistakes when they really errors. Yeah, uh, I mean, you could even go beyond just the defenseman and say it was a, a bad game defensively for the entire team. Um, there's areas that they have to really clean up because if you come in with that sort of effort tomorrow night it doesn't matter that you're playing um one of the bottom teams in the west like they'll they'll jump on you if you're if you're going to just give up three breakaways in one period it's just these are things that they they have to be sharper on and all these odd man rushes uh, skinner really did save the day last game and you know we were probably lucky that it was only a 3-2 result your point even um like just imagine those mistakes the other way that's how that's how we yeah. having the two best players capitalize on those kind of mistakes right so and one one of the biggest stats i just wanted to point out is we've played 26 games now and i was just looking this up but we've allowed three goals minimum in 21 of 26 only five games this year yeah. with three goals or less and two were against the st louis blues who are not having a good season at all um, yeah, they're one of the top so, scoring teams in the league, but they also are allowing far too many goals. I think this is the amount of offense we expected from the Oilers coming into the year, but we expected them also to be better at keeping the goals against down. I hope some of these mistakes are correctable. Like our power play is still ranked third at 29%, yeah. only better by the uh, the Bruins and the Avalanche. But we've mentioned how the PK has been a deficiency just four teams that one of them is the Canucks the Kraken the Ducks and the Blues and the Arizona Coyotes aren't that great at that either but um, yeah. that's def definitely been a factor we're middle at the pack at face-offs and we allow 33 game that's hmm. ranked 27th out of 32 so 
we're we're allowing too many shots. We're we're not getting in the way. We're not we're not giving our goaltenders much assistance. Um, uh, secondary chances are not getting boxed out, and and we're off to slow starts. So yeah, there, there are numerous factors here. They they can all be corrected. Um, I think as the Oilers start getting healthier and healthier, hopefully with Warren Fogle and McLeod being closer, to, oh, not McLeod, Warren Fogle being closer to day-to-day, Hyman right. being closer to day-to-day, Yamamoto being back. These are things that should at least help elevate the we have out front, and maybe that can limit the amount of time we're spending uh, stuck in our own zone. But it, it all works. Entire team has to buy into right now. Yeah, agreed. Um, and, and like you did, you you've touched on the Oilers' poor start, so I think we should go there. Um, you know, this has been an ongoing issue for a few years now, and it's forced the Oilers to be playing from behind far too often. Last year, they were one win short of setting an NHL record for most come from behind victories in a row. And I think it was with the 1944-45 Montreal Canadiens who had 23 straight wins when trailing and the Oilers did it 22 times. And the issue was is that this was like game 65 when they were approaching the record. So it shows that they were only scoring first about one third of the time. So that's another issue that's carried on to this year. I believe they've scored with, including last night, I think it's nine times that they've scored first now this season and nine out of 26 just isn't enough. So Regu, I'll just ask they did, they did score first, but they were badly outshot in the first period. Uh, Why do you think they have such difficulty starting on time? Because it seems like it's uh, it's for different reasons. There's times where they look like they're buzzing in the first 10 minutes, but they're just not getting clean shots through. So then the scoreboard is kind of, or the shot clock is irrespective of what's kind of going on in the game. And then uh, other times they're just, we've, we've had some afternoon games. I think I even looked, we have nine afternoon games this year, which again, is no excuse, but we seem to not wake up for those. Oddly <laughs> enough, they weren't too bad on them last year, if I remember. So, you know, I know this has been a trend for years and years where the Oilers have struggled in matinees, but for some reason last year and maybe even the year before, they weren't as bad as usual. So I was hoping that that would kind of keep going this year, but it's once again, thinking about that Dallas game, which was awful and the St. Louis one that they were in right till the end. Game although, two. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a sleepy one, nothing game until the last minute of the, the third when they scored the empty netter to make it two nothing but still i mean um they they haven't had much success with uh with matinees this year right like that that is a year over year change but just it, it, it's like you can always see it in the body language now why has it persisted i, I think one of the things that makes me i guess it's a slightly a bit disheartening is you make the final four obviously mm-hmm. nothing is guaranteed every year but it almost seems like that uh, sense of doubt has crept in. Like they're almost waiting for the other team to score the first goal, which uh, with with what they just proved, I don't know why that's seeping in, but it, it, it's almost like you can kind of read it on the body language at times. Um, so 
have a good answer for you on why our our starts continue to be slow. I know they're they're practicing hard in between and they're talking about it and and yet it yeah yet it continues to happen and and it's interesting because we also faced a backup like w- one of the most fascinating things I saw was at the end of the game they had 50 shots we had 30 but I didn't feel like we had taken 30 shots that was I felt like they had taken 50 shots I didn't feel like we took 30 shots because I didn't feel like Lindgren really had to face much um, I mean it was volume difficulty. That, that... Yeah. They they were shooting from everywhere too, and the Oilers seem to be a team that's a little more selective in their shots. Like they want to find that perfect angle, and sometimes if it's not there, they will make the extra pass. And uh, a lot of the times it doesn't connect and ends up in the corner. And now, well, the chance is gone. Whereas the Capitals seem content to shoot the puck anytime they cross the blue line. Teams, I, I mean, Washington really, really did it to us. And um, I mean, even Stuart Skinner has faced over in his short tenure as an Oilers goaltender. Yeah. So it already it, it, that's that's not a that's not a great stat. You wanna um, you wanna give your goaltender some some real support and not make sure he's facing everything, anything, and everything all the time. But um, yeah, it's it's hard to pin pinpoint out. Eh? Even even another stat I didn't even mention was just yeah, faceoffs being 16th in the league. I think the Oilers are also lacking the ability to win faceoffs beyond Drysaddle most of the time. Um, and I'm a big fan Mc, of Derek. McDavid's Ryan, gotten better at them. Yeah, he and, and Derek, Derek Ryan, you thought would be a guy that you could count on a little more in the dot, and um, yeah, for some reason they they seem to get scored on a lot right off losing a defense or an, uh, yeah, sorry, a defensive zone face off, you know, it just within like 10 to 20 seconds, the other team is capitalizing on it. And um, there's just too many times where that's happening. And that has to be an area they clean up where even if you do lose the draw, your positioning is better that the other team isn't getting a glorious scoring chance immediately. That, that comes with the the boxing out by the, by yeah. the defense. So even yeah, going back to the rumor about Eric Carlson, I, I yeah, I'm so he happy doesn't really Carlson fix. It's having yeah, he doesn't fix our problem. He's no. kind of another offensive defenseman that that doesn't protect his zone. So where we're just continuing to and I, I get that the Oilers are trying to go for more of that skill, but yeah, um, you you do need you do need some somebody back there to be a good stay at home defender. <laughs> I mean, it, it it would be fun to see Carlson and McDavid in in overtime together, just just for the sake of bringing them in for that reason alone. Uh, um, um, I, but but to your point, even about the faceoffs, I think um, I think this is where it gets tough, where you're playing McDavid and Drysdale together, and I thought yesterday. I, I have to give credit to the Capitals. I thought they really neutralized that line. Um, I don't know if the high ankle sprain is still bothering Dreisaitl. It, it, it's hard to gauge because he does tend to have games where he can be a little bit more sluggish in general, but uh, it could be something that he's that that's still there, that's still impacting him. And um, when, when you're forced out of necessity to play those two together and you can shut down that line it's tough when depth scoring wise, you're not getting anything else. The the fact that Evander Kane points even after being out is is not a great sign. Bouchard is still behind him, 
by two points. So it's uh, we're definitely not getting enough from from everyone else trying to chip in and and make things happen. Yeah, and I don't want to blame things on e- on injuries too much. I mean, you you did point out Ryan Ryan McLeod is still on IR, but hopefully we'll have him back sometime before Christmas. Warren Fogle day to day, Zach Hyman now day to day. Which you know we get Yamamoto back, and right as we get him back, we lose Zach Hyman um, and Evander Kane, uh, who's arguably still the best winger on this team. I mean, you can make a case for Hyman too, but you know what Kane brings is. You know the the intimidation factor, the skill, the speed. We saw how deadly he was in the playoffs last year with McDavid. Um, I mean, as far as a winger goes, he's about as perfect a fit as you can find. And it was encouraging to see him back skating um, and stick handling with the puck, which I didn't expect to see one month after uh, Patrick Maroon's skate sliced him all the way down to the bone in his forearm. So. Uh, that's a, that's a good sign to see that he's, you know, his arm isn't immobile now. He's able to at least handle the puck, if only very lightly even. And we're still two months away from getting him back. So at, at the earliest, maybe three. So, you know, that's, that's a, a hole that they're just not going to be able to fill. And people can call these excuses, but they're factors. Losing four of your top nine forwards, especially your best two wingers in Evander Kane and Zach Hyman, that's going to hurt a team. Take any team around the league and take the two best wingers off their team. Maybe they'll be able to withstand it and and get through it easier than the Oilers are, but I can tell you that it's still going to have an impact on them. Um. I think what I find the most interesting is that if you recall last year, I think it was around late December, January, we had four defensemen out and we had to call in a bunch of players. And I think where I'm a little bit. Yeah, that's when Broberg came up. And I think Nima Linen made his debut around that time. And in that time span, the big, I think the biggest difference here is I, I expected to go down we were missing two of our best players um Kane obviously is a big one it's it's impacted McDavid uh because he was flying before that and and when you had McDavid and Drysdale on two different lines you had a bigger threat down the middle so um obviously those things were going to play a factor I think what I'm most disappointed by is our defense hasn't really suffered many major injuries uh Murray's been out um but he wasn't playing that and the fact that that last decor, even when we had all those injuries, wasn't performing as poorly as this. So it, it, I think, I think one of the biggest things to always keep in mind here is that defense is a team-based thing and not just the defensemen. Yeah. But, um, but the defensemen are making some errors that are keeping the pucks in the zone. That um, we're. we're 26 games in there's some of these things you would hope would have been cleaned up by now at least a little bit so uh. and and look I'm not trying to make excuses for Ken Holland or Dave Manson who's coaching these guys or anything but through no fault of their own the Oilers lost their top pairing a couple years ago in Oscar Clefbaum and Adam Larson um, if if Oscar Clefbaum was completely healthy and on this team right now, how much different does the blue line look with everyone getting shifted down one spot on the left side? And if 
things had gone a little better for um, Larson here. I mean, obviously, he kind of carried the burden of being traded for Taylor Hall his entire tenure while he was here. And, uh, you know, even more devastating to him on a trip from Sweden to watch his son play. His his dad died in Edmonton um, of a heart attack. So with everything he went through in Edmonton, I don't blame him for moving on to try and just put that chapter behind him. But if the Oilers had that pairing still on top of what they have right now, with like I said, with everyone being shifted down one spot, I think this blue line's in a lot better position than it is. Tweeted about this uh, earlier today, so just really? felt like you were reading my mind there. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I loved Clefbaum. I still remember. Yeah. I think last time I was on your podcast, I mentioned I was at game five of the 2017 first round against the Sharks where we were down. And he scored the tying goal. And that was just the thing. Clefbaum had that wicked bomb. It's it's like that. That's why we love Bouchard and his Bouch bombs. And um, that's what Clefbaum could do. And he was that elite defenseman. And I really felt that he was in line with. If if he never got injured, I felt like he could do things that a Victor Hedman could do. Um, unfortunately, I don't think Darnell Nurse. He has the physical practice. He's 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 a decision making skills mm-hmm. that are just not in his register. And and we've seen 500 games of him. We just celebrated his fifth uh, 500th game. So I I agree. I think losing him was big with the injury, and he's probably not play hockey again based on the last time we saw him. And and Larson, as you pointed out, I think it, it's funny he did have to overcome that one for one and all those comments. But yeah, I think a lot of Oilers fans really loved Adam Larson. They I did. Was one of them. And, I, I, I think he just carried yeah. that that burden of yeah. like that's that's always going to be linked to how he joined the team, and that I'm sure that sucks to like think about you were traded for a fan favorite and. You know, that everyone's basically pointing out how many points Taylor Hall has, and you're a defensive defenseman, and you're comparing him to an offensive-minded winger. It's just, it, it's, it was never going to be a fair comparison for him. And I, I will just agree with you on Clefbaum. I, I think he was trending towards that top-tier defenseman status, and it's it's really sad that his career came to an end at age 27. I would bet that the goal that you just described there, uh, tying it against San Jose, which ultimately led to the David DeHarnay overtime goal. Um, that was probably the biggest moment of his NHL career. Sad that, yeah, as you said, 27. So, um, and this is a first round pick, you know, he, he was picked yeah. in the first round the same year as Nuge 2011. And I remember thinking, okay, the Oilers got their future franchise center. Check that one off. Okay, now they got their future top pairing left shot defenseman. Check that one off. Uh, Nuge played right away and had an impact as a rookie. Clefbaum took a little longer. He had a bunch of injuries early in, in his career before he even came overseas, but turned into a really solid NHL defenseman for about a five-year period. And it's just, it, it's, it's a shame that we didn't get to see, you know, how 
his career would have played out if he could have kept going. Um, and unfortunately, like we said, this is the third straight season that he's missed now. So um, I, I think it's safe to say that he probably won't play professional hockey again, but hopefully he'll still be able to have a, a good life and he won't have any, you know, lingering uh, issues that will impact his movement. All right, now on a more positive note, the Oilers are still holding down the first wildcard spot with a 14-12-0 record, despite mounting injuries and a difficult schedule through the first two months of the season. But as the schedule eases a bit for the rest of December, with more than half of their remaining games against non-playoff teams, Regu, do you see an opportunity for the Oilers to bank some points here while they're missing some key pieces and move up the standings? Yeah, I definitely do. I mean, we've got Arizona, uh, Nashville, St. Louis, Anaheim. These are some some winnable games. Uh, the ones that scare me are we're playing Minnesota twice back-to-back, and I believe we lost all three games to them last year, and the first two haven't fared well this year. So those, those two definitely make me nervous. But uh, overall, this is a time where we can bank points and um, – and the good news is the teams in front of us in our division, at least outside of Vegas, seem to be uh, starting to come back down to earth a bit as well. Mm-hmm. So this is a good time to kind of make some ground and and, and gain it back. Yeah, I, I mean, the games you mentioned, those are games that good teams find a way to win. Um, yeah. uh, there have been times in the past where the Oilers have played down to their competition, but they need to bring it because they've beaten some really good teams this year. I mean, I think of teams like Carolina, Tampa Bay, Florida, uh, and, uh, now, you know, you're going up against some weaker teams and you can't just say, well, okay, this is going to be a guaranteed win night because, you know, we're playing a team that's near the bottom of the standings. Anyone can beat anyone in the NHL. We've seen this in the past. We know this to be true. Um, I, I always think back to early in the 2010s, when the Chicago Blackhawks were in the midst of their modern day dynasty and the Oilers were at the bottom of the league, the Oilers mm-hmm. always seem to either give them a good game or in some cases beat them pretty badly. So you, it almost makes you think like, how can this terrible Oilers team beat the defending Stanley cup champions so convincingly, but that just shows in the NHL, you know, sometimes a team just has another team's number or uh, on one night they just, find the the right stuff to come out and give you the the game you need to come on top but when you're playing some of these weaker teams like the ones you mentioned you can't just say okay well anaheim's coming to town they've lost five in a row you know guaranteed win night oh we're just going to pad the stats against arizona those very well could happen but you don't want to have another instance where uh, they take it to you for the first 10 minutes of the game. And now you're down by one and you're chasing it because whether you're chasing it against a Stanley cup contender or a bottom pairing team, it's just, it, it's not fun, you know, having to be trailing game after game and having to, you know, kind of claw your way back into it night after night. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, even uh, in the last six games where we're four and two, um, we already talked about, um, the the game against Florida where Evan Bouchard scores with five seconds to go yeah. to at least give us a point, um, let alone two. But the game before that against the Rangers, we had to score four goals in the third period. And while it's great Epic that we're comeback. capable of doing that, to, yeah. to, to do that on a regular basis is not what you want. And <sighs> similarly with Chicago, we just talked about 
Well, that was a game where they had a 4-1 lead in the third (laughs) period, and the Blackhawks score three times, including two goals in a span of 19 seconds. And all of a sudden, you know, thank goodness McDavid and Dreisaitl scored that two-on-one goal because, you know, that was the insurance marker, the the double insurance marker they needed to to hold on to that win. It would be so nice for them to have a 3-1 lead going into the second intermission and come out and they just nurse that one to the end and maybe score an empty netter and walk away with a 4-1 victory. But this season has been such a roller coaster ride so far. And and last season was too for a big part of the year until Woodcroft came in in February, where it just seems like they they can never win easy. It's always a battle right to the end. Even the game that they won in Carolina, they scored six goals that night, but Carolina fought back to the end and scored four themselves. So. Four. It's yeah, yeah, it's it's, you know, <laughs> and McDavid, of course, had the empty netter, but it's just uh, it, it would be nice for them to just get a lead early for once. And it's not really in danger at all. You just sort of feel comfortable that they're just going to take this one all the way to the end and, and show a, a little bit of veteran maturity as a team and say, OK, you know, we've we've been to a conference final now. We know what it takes to win and, and just find a way to not have to make every game so dramatic to the final <laughs> minutes. Yeah, no. And it's, it's, it's funny. Um, yeah. Even though you mentioned the Carolina with four goals, I, I looked at that stat too, and we've let in four goals in 12 of 26 games, so almost 50% yeah. of our games we've let in four. Um, but it's, it's funny. You made a comment about um, a, a good two goal lead kind of period the Montreal game was one of the better lockdown third periods yes. that I'd seen us play. And that's why coming into the Washington game um, after Darcy Kemper got injured in, in Calgary two nights before um, you, you think that's a game we have to take advantage of yet. We again came out slow. So it is one of those enigmas where why can't we, and and I am one of those believers that momentum is built in the game you're playing you don't really carry momentum game to game um so what i'm saying is a bit counterintuitive but i just really thought they would have taken something from that montreal victory being able to hold on um mcdavid parting the seam scoring that that amazing goal and kind of icing the game there but again they just didn't come out with that and and again you got yamamoto back you would have thought that even with hyman out that would have given the whole team this boost some jump yeah and, yeah. and he kills penalties too which is nice to, ha- yeah. to have one of our regular penalty killers back but then of course you lose hyman so you're losing one of your other better penalty killers um so it's kind of like a double-edged sword there you get one back but lose the other yeah uh, we we haven't really seen a full healthy team since early in the year and i think it's worth mentioning that the oilers have four players right now that are over a point per game uh yeah. mcdavid dry Nugent Hopkins and Hyman. The last right. time that they had four players that were over a point per game this deep into the season was in 1988-89. So we're talking about 34 years since this yeah. has happened. Yep. I mean, it's it's a, this is like right after the Gretzky trade. That's how far yep. back we have to go. And, you know, that's we knew that we were going to get that from McDavid and Dreisaitl. I think that Nugent Hopkins and Hyman have even outperformed expectations to this point. Um, We know that they're going to be reliable secondary contributors. You expect them to be sort of in that 50 to 70 point range, 
probably hovering somewhere around 60 if they're if they're healthy. Um, right now, it looks like both guys, depending on how long Hyman's going to be out, are on track to have over 70 points this year, even if they fall back a little bit. Evander Kane was another guy who was over a point per game at one point and then fell just below it before he got hurt. Mm-hmm. So the Oilers realistically could have five guys who are in that sort of point per game pace. And when you have that strong of a top six, you're a lethal offensive team and they've still continued to be a lethal offensive team, even without Kane for the past month. But when you start, the injuries really start to mount up and your bottom six isn't kind of picking up the slack while these guys are out and the defense is leaking too many chances and your goaltending is inconsistent game to game. That's why you're at a spot where you're only two games at over 500. I would much rather prefer that the Oilers were sitting in first or second in the Pacific at this point of the year, which is where I expected them to be, rather than uh, battling for a wild card spot. Now, we are lucky that there there is still 56 games to go this yeah. year. Yeah. So there's still a lot of runway and we are going to get healthy. But as of right now, it's, you know, I, I understand why fans are discouraged about the record. You know, I'm I'm disappointed, too, but I don't think that this team is as bad as some people are making them out to be right now. Yeah, I think just a couple points on on even those players like I'm I, I think Nugent Hopkins is one of the best Oilers there there that that there's ever been. And he'll be one of the longest tenured he's gonna break kevin lowe's record eventually exactly for Um, most games but one specific point with him even as good as he's been one thing i noticed of his 27 points 13 have been on the power play so he's got 14 even strength (laughs) points so i think one of the biggest things we're missing and and this is where it was strange because when woodcroft came in uh, the Oilers had become a better even strength mm-hmm. team. And this year, we seem to be back to requiring the power play to make something happen. And and that's why we do have some of these games where it's like, okay, we're playing well, we're playing well, we're shooting a lot, and then we're producing on the power play. And then either we're winning those games or we're ended up just coming short because the differential is the even strength yeah. battles. And that's where I think we need to improve a little bit more on because one thing that we noticed and we noticed it last year too especially when we got to the Colorado series sometimes the whistles go away it happens in the playoffs all the time I mean all the time (laughs) look at the series against the Blackhawks in 2020 and the series against the Jets in 2021 you know McDavid was mauled night after night uh, tripped slashed held tackled to the ice in some instances and he couldn't buy a penalty like nothing he could do would draw one. he went eight straight playoff games without drawing a penalty, which is seems impossible when you're the best player in the world and you exactly. always have the puck. It just, you know, just even by, by pure luck, someone is going to to hook you. But the fact that he was just getting abused so consistently and they wouldn't call anything. Uh, so you make a good point. Um, they do need to improve their even strength scoring. But on the other hand, every team is built differently and For the sure. Oilers are a high skill team that thrives on the power play. And I, I don't necessarily like this narrative that it seems like some fans on Twitter have this idea that, and it, not just Oilers fans, but hockey observers in general, that for some reason, power play points mean less than even strength points. And they all count the same. 
yes, you'd like to see your team not have to rely on the man advantage to score as often. But with the skill that the Oilers are able to put out there night after night, even when they do have injuries, of course they're going to be a deadly team on the power oh, play. for sure. Um, and Nugent Hopkins, his entire career, even going back to when he played junior for the Red Deer Rebels, has always been a power play wizard. That is yep. where his game has thrived. And he might only be an average contributor at even strength. But, you know, th- this idea that McDavid and Dreisaitl, um, you know, the their only reason they're as productive <laughs> as they are is because the power play is like ridiculous. I mean, uh, McDavid, I believe, has the most even strength points in the league over the last five years. So I think these yeah. narratives just kind of pop out of nowhere and, a, as a way to sort of diminish what they're accomplishing. But oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and this podcast, you know, unfortunately, we've had to talk about a little more negative things than than positive, which, you know, isn't my favorite because I'm a I'm an optimistic, positive yes, kind of guy, especially sure. when it comes to my team. <laughs> right. But but, you know, let's stop for a second and talk about how the Oilers have the top two scorers in the league right now with McDavid at 48 points and Dreisaitl at 42 points. I mean, yeah, they are both on pace for career years. McDavid, I think he's on pace for 149 points right now. Drysidel, I have to check. I, I think it was 136 the last time I looked, and who knows if they're actually going to maintain that until the end of the season. But I just wanted to take a second and say just what a great year these two are had, and we've been so lucky in oil country to watch them for the past eight nine years, and it's just been year over year domination from them, and um. You know, once this team gets healthy with those two leading the the charge, I have a feeling that the second half is going to go a lot better than we've seen thus far in the first half. Oh, I I, I agree, and yeah, I, I'm the same. Like to me, yeah, power play points, even strength points, they yeah, they are the they are the same in terms of what they represent. Um, and I think it is one of those things where because McDavid and Drysaddle have forced to have been together due to injuries it's kind of impacted a lot of things so as we get healthier and you can go back to separating them and making sure that they are really only paired together once it comes to the power play it just creates more threats and yeah and and as you said that would happen to any team that loses four of their top nine forwards so <laughs> uh even with nuge i i think uh like i think he's having an amazing season um and right now he's just been hampered similarly by the fact that he's been juggled wingers and he's trying to find some chemistry and cohesion. And um, it's, it's just the tough thing that happens when you are dealt that kind of hand. So um, while yeah, 14 and 12 is not where we want to be the the schedule getting easier, hopefully leads to more wins and allows us to get healthier while that's happening. And by the time we get into April. This is not even what we're talking about anymore. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I'm looking forward to having you back on the show later in the season, hopefully when the Oilers are in a little better spot and we'll have a few more wins to talk about. But just to wrap up the show tonight, I thought we'd kind of uh, go into something that was kind of uh, some fun, interesting breaking news today that uh, Jason Greger uh, from TSN 1260 and Oilers Nation had. Now, last season... Elliot Friedman had mentioned on a Hockey Night in Canada broadcast that the Oilers had uh, told the league that they were hoping to host a Heritage Classic in the fall of 2023 uh, for the 20th anniversary of the inaugural Heritage Classic that they held at Commonwealth Stadium back in 2003. 
And Jason Greger confirmed today that the Oilers will be hosting a game. Uh, it is scheduled to be played in October 2023, although they haven't had a date. But it should be against the Calgary Flames. This kind of goes back to where we started the podcast talking about the Battle of Alberta. Is it just too obvious of a choice to have it against the, the their biggest rival, the Flames? Oh, yeah. If, if it was anything else, it would be unjust. <laughs> no, <laughs> it, I love it, the it original the one. Flames. Yes. And I mean, the, the original one, it was such a it was such a beautiful concept. You know, the Oilers 25th anniversary in the league, yeah. the, the the mega stars game that they had before that, the 70s Habs playing the 80s Oilers in, in the like I said, the alumni game. And then you have this game where uh, there's the iconic image of. Uh, oh, why? Why am I blanking on the Habs goaltender right now? Um, he won the heart. No, two. I am I am also blanking on it. Um Oh, this is so bad. The, the oh. uh, But he was he was wearing the toque, right? Yes, and, he was wearing the toque, yeah. And uh of course, you know, you're you're seeing the, the throwback uniforms that the Oilers were wearing. It, it just it, it was such an incredible scene. Uh, Jose Theodore. Jose yes, of course. Thanks. For some reason, I was thinking Jocelyn Tebow, and I'm like, yeah. that's not right. <laughs> yeah. But no, uh, like Jose, Jose, and I, yeah, Jose. Yes. <laughs> oh, I, and I mean, like, I I remember that so vividly. I was a 14 year old Gretzky fan that was glued to the TV, getting to watch my hero play in an Oilers uniform for the first time. And Gretzky had always said after he retired that he was never going to play in any quote-unquote old-timers games yeah but this at the time was seen as like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get back with uh his old teammates from the 80s and he said that he wanted his kids to see him play in an oilers jersey at least one time because they were all born after the trade to la so he got to have that moment uh he got to play for them and of course in 2016 he he suited up with the oilers one last time and I had to be there for it that because I, I figured this is probably going to be my one and only time to ever see Wayne Gretzky play live. And it didn't matter to me that he, uh, you know, doesn't hardly skate anymore and wasn't uh, at his best. Just getting to see number 99 on the ice. I have so many pictures and videos from that day, and I'm glad I got to do it. Um but Winnipeg also, I'll just say, did a fantastic job of hosting. I still think that I think that were you there as well? I wasn't there, but okay. I just remember how they, they did a great job. Yeah. I can tell you. And the 2003, I think is still the gold standard for outdoor games. You've seen some that they've had in the U S that have been yeah. almost too commercialized, like with, with kiss playing at uh, the, the game in San Francisco uh, where the sharks and Kings were playing and just oh, yeah. trying, trying to do a little too much with some of these games, just the purity of that first game you know, between the Habs and the Oilers, you know, minus whatever it was, 27, 28. That's why I think they're having it in October this year. So it doesn't uh, have to hopefully be uh, uh, incredibly cold uh, game uh, in late November. Um, but just it, it's exciting to hear that Edmonton's finally going to get another chance to host it. And um, I was sorry to cut you off there before, but I, I think that Montreal, or sorry, I think that Edmonton and Calgary is the obvious choice you go with. 
Oh yeah, I agree. Like I think um, uh, you're talking about 20 years later after the inaugural and against your provincial rival. Like I, I really couldn't. It would be another one of those how we just discussed how the Oilers and the Flames only got three games this year. That would be yep. another dramatic mistake by by the NHL to not make that the opponent. I just think all eyes would be glued. And then if we even talk about the alumni game of those two teams, there are just yeah. so many great players. And um, that's actually but, what I wanted to ask you next. And I think you like you said. Um, it's best to do it on a Saturday night. Have it as hockey night in Canada. Don't put it on some Tuesday night or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I went to the game in Winnipeg. And like I said, there, the alumni game was on Saturday afternoon. And the actual NHL game was on sun, Sunday afternoon. And there was a two-hour delay on, on the Sunday because um, the sun was too bright. And the players couldn't see the puck because of the glare off the ice. And it was almost melting the ice. So they had to wait for it to be later. Have the game at 7 o'clock Edmonton time. Uh, you know, it's still going to be early enough because the time change hasn't happened that it would be on, I think, 8 p.m. in Toronto at the time. I want to say, I hope I have that right. I live in Saskatchewan where we don't have time change. So sometimes I get a, a little confused about which way it's going. But uh, that seems like the the smartest decision to go in. And what I just wanted to get to is what you were, were just touching on there. Because time has passed and the, the as much as we'd love to see Gretzky and Curry and Messier and Coffee yeah. out there again, you know, those guys are into their 60s now. And who knows if they want to be involved at all. But uh, Jason Greger kind of put out that we can expect to see an alumni game featuring more players from the late 90s and early 2000s, which is an era when you and I were kids oh, yeah. and we're, we're falling in love with this team and, and learning the game. And I just want to ask, who are maybe two or three guys that you're excited to see wear the oil drop again for the first time in many years? Yeah, uh, I was going to say there's four players I'd want to see. Uh, my favorite being Ryan Smith. I think yeah. I mentioned that last time I was, I was on your podcast. Um, even Even the fact that his name now hangs in the rafters and he has his, uh, his name across the, the banner. I saw it, uh, at, at yeah. the game yesterday. And, and uh, he but... was in the 2016 game as well. And I can tell you, uh, he was only 40 years old at the time, two years, um, after he retired. So he was actually one of the best players on the ice that day. <laughs> oh, was he? Okay. Yeah. Like he was quite a bit younger than, uh, I mean, most of those guys at the time from the eighties were in their mid fifties. Yeah. And you know, Ryan Smith was still playing senior men's hockey uh, in Alberta That's at the time. Right. So, yeah. you know, a, a quite significant advantage. And I think Timu Solani was only two years post-retirement as well. So those were two of the main guys. But yeah, I mean, Smitty being out there, that's a that's a no brainer. Yeah, Smitty being out there and then the other three that I would personally just want to see, and, and again, to see them all in the same game together would be uh, Roly the goalie, uh, Doug Waite and Al Shemsky. Oh, yeah. I mean, Hemsky, for sure. I am with you on that. Uh, Doug Waite, he hasn't put on an Oilers jersey since 2001. I yep. think more more than 20 years later, he would get such a loud ovation um, coming out for that uh, for that game. Uh, I will tell you, I, I got a, a quick story for you. When I was uh, when I was at the game in 2016, they used a different goaltender for every period of that alumni game. 
And one of the periods was Dwayne Rollison. And the next morning, I had a flight back to Saskatoon from Winnipeg. It's at like, I'm at the airport at something like 6 a.m. Okay. And and I, I'm sitting with my friend uh, at... Uh, in the, the the terminal area and uh i i look over and i see a guy walk by and i'm like that guy looks a lot like Dwayne rollison but i I just did i didn't i didn't think twice about it and then i go over to use the the water fountain and then this kid walks over and he was kind of sitting with that guy and i look again I'm like i swear that's Dwayne rollison so when the kid came over i asked hey is that Dwayne Rolson over there? And, and turns out that it was his dad and, <laughs> and, and, and Dwayne's brother was with him. And I said, do you think I could go over and say hi? And he said, yeah, sure. So I walked over, met him, shook his hand, thanked him for everything he did on the 06 cup run. And we took a picture together. So that was really cool that I got to see Dwayne. And I'm sure that he will be, um, uh, if they go back to the same format and do a different goalie for every period, I'm sure that he'll get another period in there as well. Oh, well, then that's even more amazing because I, even when I was thinking about on the flame side, like I would think players like Jerome McGinley, who was probably one of the few flames I just really liked and respected. Oh, oh, I think most Oilers fans respected yeah. him. There was always a <laughs> level of respect. And I don't even think it had anything to do with the fact that he was from Edmonton. He just, yeah. he was a player who you just, even though you could never cheer for him when he was playing against no. him, you always said like, I really respect the way that guy plays the game. Yeah, I agree. Um, so there'd be him. I can think of, again, I haven't given much thought to the flame side, but there'd be him. Probably I'm not looking forward one. to Robin Regeer. I Robin know I, Regeer? Oh, God, no. <laughs> he was probably one of my most hated, especially for how hard he went against Hemsky. Yeah. I'd I, love to see Hemsky dangle him and score a beautiful goal in the alumni game. That would yeah, be that sweet. Would be <laughs> um, and, and, you know, uh, Curtis Joseph was also one of the goalies that they used in the last alumni game in 2016. And he could come back. You know, I, I think there's a lot of fans, uh, still from his short time with the Oilers in the late nineties. And, uh, oh, yeah. you know, I, I, but I wonder if they would go with a couple more recent guys, like would Devin Dubnik be one of the, the, the goalies that they would invite? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, like, it's funny, I think back to the goalies when, like, some of the other ones, like, I would think of, like, Tommy Sallow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, like, maybe Mike Smith. Cool. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe Mike Smith. No, he we, is an we alumni. might need him. We might need him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but wouldn't that be, I mean, he's still under contract, so, true. you know, yep. <laughs> if, if, the, if the playoffs roll around and there's no salary cap and, and a goalie gets hurt, you know, he's eligible, so. Exactly. <laughs> That that's really funny. Uh, <laughs> I I think it will be fun to watch those groups. Like Steve Steos is another guy yeah. who played in the last one in 2016 as well. Um, I think he'd be back. I, I just think we're gonna see fewer and fewer of the 80s dynasty players. It's gonna be a collection more. I think from maybe that 06 run. Like you could see a Fernando Pisani in there. Maybe yeah. you'll see a Jason Smith. Who knows if Chris Pronger would ever accept an invitation but i even think that would be cool yeah that would be that would be really cool um, it's sometimes hard to know where he stands with the organization because he didn't come to the farewell to rexall place in 2016 but yeah, you know i i wonder if he would come back for for an alumni game like that you you know it was it was interesting uh i was listening to 32 thoughts of uh, this was 
a few weeks, maybe a month ago, and they did an interview with Chris Pronger, and they even asked him about the 06 run, and he he didn't it wasn't it wasn't a big focus of the interview but he said that he really enjoyed his time in Edmonton and I again how much does that mean but but he gave a very genuine nice answer from what from what I heard so I mean it's never out of the realm of possibility well it was his first trip to the final and you know that obviously is going to mean and I think of other guys like what Rafi Torres played Jarrett Stoll um Sergei yeah and, and i mean samsonov a shorter time there but you know very impactful you yeah. know when from when he when he was there in that you know in that couple run of yeah so there's there's definitely some players to pick from and i think for our generation especially it it might not mean as much to anyone who's under the age of 25 but for kids who are growing up at the same time as us because you and i are are fairly close in age having having those players that we grew up watching i think the nostalgia would just be so awesome to see that group of players from the 06 run and you know even a guy like bill Guerin, you know I, he could yeah he could suit suit up with the oilers for a game Ethan Morrow. yeah like there's it, it could be pretty cool and, and don't get me wrong I love the '80s Oilers. I wasn't around for it, but just as a as a fan of that era, it was yep. so cool to see them in 2003 and again in uh, 2016. But the, as they're getting older, you know, it's an opportunity for um, some younger uh, Oilers alumni to get a chance to play, and I think that they could uh, ice a pretty interesting roster too. Maybe even uh, oh, I mean, of course, I, I can't believe I haven't even said this one yet, but George LaRock. Yeah, <laughs> I was just thinking George the Rock as well. I'd be disappointed if he didn't play, actually. Yeah, I mean, Eric I'm Brewer like, on defense. You never know. Yeah, <laughs> well, See, we and, could and, we could keep going for probably an well, hour listing the guys that Michael <laughs> was the other one that just I was thinking about. So yeah, um, but I agree we could we could. I mean, they can only invite twenty guys, so there's probably yeah. going to be some that'll be left out. But well, it was uh, funny when the Oilers played the uh, the Habs, right? And then George the Rock switch jerseys in between periods um during during one of those alumni games so that was pretty funny <laughs> okay yeah no i think uh it's just going to be an awesome event not just for the oilers but the city of edmonton i'm really oh. going to try to get tickets to it so i don't know if if it is ends up being a battle of alberta and you end up going to we'll have to meet up when we uh when we go there we will, yeah, and we'll definitely have to arrange a time to actually meet up and for sure. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the heavy hockey guys are there actually, and yeah. I think it is smart to do it in October. I, the game that I went to uh, in Winnipeg, I think I want to say it was about plus five when I got to the stadium that afternoon. But like I said, there was a two-hour delay, and it was closer to zero by the time puck drop happened. So I, that's maybe a realistic temperature which if you're going to sit outside and watch a two and a half hour hockey game it's not miserable to sit in zero but you know for those for those souls that stayed out there in the minus 27 uh blizzard in in 2003 i i don't know how you lasted (laughs) but uh no it's going to be an awesome event and uh it's really cool that they're getting to host it again and you'd think with superstar players like McDavid and Dreisaitl that the Oilers would be in these type of games more often. I mean, it's going to be seven years by the time this game is played. 
from their last Heritage Classic. Yeah. So, and, and only their third one overall. And you look at a team like the Chicago Blackhawks, who seem to be in it every year. Now, they, they are a big market team, and they did have a, a like I said, a, some call it a dynasty, some don't, but they were a top team in the league for a long time. So I get why they were in those games consistently, but you'd like to see the Oilers play in more of these high-profile outdoor games as well. Oh, yeah. No, I agree. I, I, I feel like, um, yeah, it's always nice when you get to see different teams, but for, for our own selfish purposes, I've yeah. been wanting to see, and I've never gotten to attend one of those kind of games so to me i just feel like a lot of people would be jumping at the chance to, to it's get such to it's and such then, a cool atmosphere and um and like i was saying like the other time they did it in winnipeg they did the the alumni game the day before i'm interested to know if they would do them back to back because if they do it's it's kind of a lot to ask people to sit through you know, one two hour game and then have like a, a short break to resurface the ice and play another full game. You could almost turn it into a whole weekend and, and do mm-hmm. something like a Friday night, Friday night alumni game, Saturday night official NHL regular season game. Um, but it, it's it's almost, I think, going to feel like a gray cup that like it, it yeah. has that that type of a, an atmosphere where it's just like these these two intense rivalries and and if it is against the flames you know there's going to be lots of people from calgary coming up for it oh yeah yeah for sure that that that's the biggest reason why we've touched on it it's got to be the calgary flames yeah. <laughs> and, and with with fifty seven thousand seats at uh commonwealth and they might yeah. even be able to add a few more just if they put some risers in uh, on the field, actually, because the the actual ice rink doesn't take up that much of the football field. You might be able to get it to close to 60,000, I would think. So that would be pretty cool if it was like, I don't know, 40,000 Oilers fans, 20,000 Flames fans. It'd be a pretty intense uh, sort of atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It would. Um, now I'm just waiting for... <laughs> next year roll around but before that happens we got to get to the playoffs. we got to win it we got to we got to go on a deep playoff run again and i will say that uh you know the rivalry really reached new heights in the playoffs last year with the oilers beating them but if you wanted to even extend those breaking rights winning that outdoor game would i think elevate it even more I agree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so just to, to wrap up tonight, uh, I wanted to mention again, you are our newest writer at heavyhockey.com. It's been great having you. Um, just what's your experience been like kind of getting to know the guys overall? And uh, do you have any ideas for uh, a new article that you might be uh, bringing out? Yeah, just uh, f- uh, first off, it's been it's been great. Uh, uh, the, the liveliness of the chat is fantastic. And it's it's uh it's always great to have differing perspectives, especially uh, we could we could go on and on about even some of the penalty calls or types of hits that we've seen, yeah. uh, whether something's deserved of a suspension and having um having a ref uh as as part of the chat is always interesting <laughs> too to get that perspective. There's some different voices in there for sure, and you know you you got the you got the guys like Dash who's who's kind of like uh, the smart ass of the group, and yeah. <laughs> uh, and you know he likes to go back and forth with Dursa, who I know you were also uh, you you did a podcast yep. with Dursa recently too. So you know I I said you know it's it's cool if you go on their show, but make sure that you appear on mine the most, right? Always, Eric, always, <laughs> okay. always yours is. Uh... 
is is the, is my go-to. Okay. But yeah, awesome. I was on on with Dursa. I was actually Dash was someone I was uh, hoping to meet yesterday at the game, but we just couldn't okay. connect. Uh, he was he was there as well. We just uh, between periods just couldn't couldn't make contact. So. Right. Um, but yeah, it's one of those things. Yeah. All the guys have been great. And, uh, right now I'm trying to think about like a, a topic to kind of sink my teeth into. I wanted mm-hmm. to kind of look at a deeper dive into the, the special teams, but I think one of the things I, I kind of want to do just even based on this conversation is start looking at what has been our first 10 minutes been like in, in a lot of these games, because we're seeing, the, the slow starts, but what, what has it looked like? Like, is it due to a lot of block shots, maybe even just pulling back the last five games and trying to get an idea of what is causing some of these sluggish starts. I'm sure some have to do with the impacts of just the way the schedule is set up. Like, I think the Minnesota game, we got in 3 a.m. that that, yeah, that and that's going to have an impact. And and they're coming off a, a, an emotional win the, the game before. So, I mean, sometimes, like I remember last year, the Oilers beat the Colorado Avalanche on Hockey Night in Canada, and it was such, like, an emotional victory for the team. You know, you took down the best team in the league uh, or one of the best teams in the league, and then they played the Blue Jackets on the road the next game, and they just fell flat. And it's just like, you know, you just couldn't match the the energy that you brought to the game before. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting. Even all around, like uh, we we've been talking so much about the Colorado Avalanche, but they're mm-hmm. behind us in the second wild card spot. They are. They've just lost Nathan McKinnon for some extended period of time. So. And that's the uh, weirdness about this year. Like, I mean, Carolina is still a really good team, but I yeah. mean, look at Florida. Florida has you know, fallen back from where they were at this point last year. The Rangers, another finalist, they've, or sorry, I should say final four finalists. They've fallen back. Um, You know, the Oilers and the Avalanche who met in the Western Conference final last year are the two wildcard seeds at the moment. The good thing is that we're still only about a third of the way through the season. So there's still a, a lot of room left to make up ground. But, um, you know, hopefully this, once this team gets going, on the right path and they, and they get healthy again, they'll, everything will start kind of getting shifted in the direction we'd like to see. But that is an interesting article idea. And I, I uh, hope that, uh, I know everyone's busy, especially at this time of year, but if you have uh, some time in the next uh, little while, I think that would be a really interesting read. Yeah, for sure. And just one final point, Eric, I was just mm-hmm. going to say, if you look at just the top 12 teams in the standings right now, who would have right. thought, these are the teams you would be looking at. <laughs> the yeah. only one I would have maybe been set on was Carolina. Um, maybe expecting Vegas to have a resurgence, but um, I did think what... that they would be better this year. I I wasn't sure that they were going yeah. to be right at the top. And some people said right the Bruins. <laughs> and, and I remember last year uh, a lot of people saying, you know, that was probably the last year for the the Bruins core. You know, they're going to be dismantled soon. And, and look Jersey's where they're at. Two this year, yep. if you recall, and they've only lost two games since then mm-hmm. in regulation so it's 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 all up and down and um it, I, even a lot of people were picking the flames to finish ahead of the oilers and you know they're they've yeah. had a, and I, I don't give the flames credit for much but they've had a tough schedule too and they're right behind the oilers right now as well although they've been healthier than than the oilers have so i still think I, I think if you if you play these teams where everyone's available the oilers are still the better team uh, even if yeah. the, the Flames, you know, the Flames probably 
win the defensive battle. Goaltending, it's such a hard to say because the Oilers have the Flames goaltender's number every time. And when it comes to the forwards, you know, we just have more firepower than they do. So um, it'll be interesting if they run into each other in the playoffs again. But anyway, Matt, it's great, to, always great talking with you, and uh, we'll definitely do this again. Awesome. Always great chatting with you too, Eric. All right. So for Raghu Sharma, I'm Eric Friesen. This has been the 99 Forever Podcast. We're out.